Hello. Good evening, guys. Thanks for uh, being here. Good to worship with you. I know you're missing out on some candy right now, so I appreciate the sacrifice and you being here with us. Um, We're in Daniel 8, so if you want to grab your Bibles and open up to Daniel 8, that'd be fantastic. Um, One of uh, a singer-songwriter that I really like, his name is uh, Ray LaMontagne. Uh, I love Ray. We could all use a little bit of Ray in our life, I'd say. Uh, But one of his first kind of big songs, a song called Trouble. It's called Trouble, and uh, don't worry, I'm not going to make you uncomfortable and sing it for you right now, a cappella, I won't do that, but um, I'll read to you some of his lyrics. So verse one goes like this, it says, trouble, 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 trouble. You can see where you got the title, right? Trouble been dogging my soul since the day I was born. Verse two, worry, 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 worry. Worry just will not seem to leave my mind alone. I'm curious if uh, you resonate with that. How are you feeling tonight, right? In Daniel chapter 8, verse 27, it's how the chapter ends. We see this chapter where Daniel is given a vision of the future, and it's just fraught with trouble. And it ends, and it says, I was overcome and I lay sick for days. But then he gets up and he goes back to work. Right, so so Ray, if you go back to the song Trouble, like Ray is, is looking around his life and he's seeing trouble and worry and he's thinking, how in the world will I get out of this? How will I get out of this? And he has an answer and it's in his chorus. Ray sings this, well, I've been saved. I've been saved. By a woman. By a woman. I've been saved by a woman. She won't let me go. No, no. I remember hearing that song in college thinking, I need a woman like Ray has, right? And uh, I found one. So it was great. You know, everything's perfect now. You know, I have no troubles. So um, no, but we we all look to something, right? Like Ray, we all look around at our troubles and our worries and we go, what is going to save me, right? What about you? What about you? What can actually save you from your troubles? This is one thing I love about the Bible is that the Bible doesn't talk about a different world than our own. We don't read it to escape. But when we read the Bible, it really presses in on us reality. And reality is often fraught with trouble. But but as we read the Bible, and even as we read Daniel chapter 8 that's fraught with trouble, it offers us Hope And the way that it offers us hope tonight is because it frames out for us a vital worldview that we should all have if you hold to a Christian worldview, right? A worldview is what, right? We all have worldviews. A worldview is just how you see the world. Every single human being on the face of the planet has a worldview. You filter everything that you experience in your life through a worldview, And every worldview has within it a belief about God. So who is God? Every time something happens, we're filtering through what's my belief about God. Maybe I don't believe in a God. Maybe you believe in the God of the Bible, right? Every worldview has within it a view of humanity. What is wrong with the world? What's wrong with me? Are people generally good? Are people generally bad? We all filter things through how we view humanity. Every worldview has within us, uh, within it values and ethics. How am I supposed to live in this world? In every worldview, has an understanding or a framework of what is salvation for me? What will save me? Every worldview has one. 
So, so just think of the events happening in your life and in this world. Right? How does that fit in your mind? As you're encountering them on a daily basis, how are you filtering them? And, and what, how are you viewing the world? How do you react to things? How do you make sense of them? How do you make sense of your trouble? Well, Daniel 8, it doesn't give us a comprehensive worldview. You need a whole Bible for that. But it gives us a vital worldview in the face of our troubles. And this is what it's showing us. In verses 1 through, uh, verses 1 through 8 and 15 through 23, I'll explain that in a minute. God is showing us, giving us a worldview that he knows the future. God knows the future. It's a part of a Christian worldview. And secondly, we're seeing here that playing God is not the solution to your troubles. That's because God rules the future. Right? The reason why the verses are all kind of wonky uh, this evening is because in verses 1 through 14, you have this dream, this vision. And in verses 15 to the end, you have this interpretation of the vision. So the best way to go through this is kind of to look at it in two parts, to look at the vision itself and then to see how it's interpreted. And then we'll look at the vision and then we'll see how it's interpreted. And through the course of this, I hope that this really gets a hold of us. So first, let's look at this. God knows the future. We'll read this in verses 1 through 8 together. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. He's talking to the one we looked at last week. It's three years later. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. So he's in a fortress of a city. He's by a canal with water. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last night. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So if you like animals, you loved that part. For the rest of us, you're going, what is happening? And that's where we go down to verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened, I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. 
And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, meaning he's just really intelligent, shall arise. So here Daniel is carried by a vision some 200 miles east of Babylon, while he's still in Babylon, while Babylon is still in power, to Susa the city and the Ulai Canal. So he's being taken into the future, you know, just kind of like Marty McFly. And he's on this hoverboard ride to present-day Iran. We have these horns here, and we horns, we all know, they're kind of made of the same things that you have your fingernails made out of, right? Learned that this week. It's kind of fun. It's a symbol of toughness, right? But really, when it's used in the Bible, a symbol that's a horn is a symbol of power and strength. And we see the power and strength of this first animal In verse 8, it's this ram. Look at the power of this ram. No beast could stand before him. There was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. That's that's power, right? So down in verses 20 through 23, who is the ram? Well, we see that the ram signifies the kings of Media and Persia. Well, Daniel didn't know. I mean, he's in Babylon. He, He hasn't experienced these sorts of kingdoms yet. So this is all in the future for him. And so it has these two horns, which evidently come up in sequence. The latter one is higher than the other, suggesting Persian dominance. This ram is conquering, and it's unconquerable. You see that in verse 4. Until the goat, right? This is not the greatest of all time sort of reference here. This is just a literal goat. It actually means shaggy goat. You know, it plows into this Persian ram, smashing it, mashing it to pieces. Right? This is pretty amazing. Who is it? Well, we saw that this goat, it's operating in this blitzkrieg style so fast that in verse 5 it says it doesn't even touch the ground. That's how fast this goat swept across this nation and conquered it. It has this huge horn. You notice that in verse 5? Verse 21 tells you who that horn is. It's the first king of what? Greece. Greece. So this is symbolizing the first king of this goat empire, and that proved to be Alexander the Great. Okay. Alexander the Great, he uh, swept across and, and was so strong and powerful in his military strength. Even before the age of 32, he accomplished all this. So it makes you feel like you haven't done much in your life, right? I mean, 32. So, so he gets here and he dies unexpectedly, quickly. He died at the age of 32, most people think from alcoholism. And he's dying at the height of his strength. You see that over in verse 5 right? In this great battle. And then his empire, it gets divided out into four other horns. You look at that down in verse 8. Verse 22 describes them. And then history shows us that after 20 years of turmoil, four of Alexander's generals dominate these different kingdoms, these four kingdoms that are birthed out of the fall of Alexander the Great in Greece. So Daniel's vision depicts a turbulent and extended time of history. I mean, if you look in verse 4 alone, verse 4 encapsulates 200 years of history, of history and political turmoil. So guys, these are not peaceful. These are not historically calm moments that Daniel is looking at here. A nation's are appearing and they're furious and they're fragile. And this is where God's people are called to live. This is our address, if you will. This is Daniel's address in exile. 
He's looking out of the future, wondering when are we going to get home from this exile? When are we going to get back to the land? It's not looking like it's going to be anytime soon. Right, but it's, notice here, Daniel wrote this over 200 years before any of this ever happened. It is amazing how specific this prophecy is and how specifically it's fulfilled. It is, in fact, most argue, the most specifically fulfilled prophecy in the entire Bible. Right, it's just so clear, it's even explained to us with great detail what is even going on here. So what does this mean for us? Do we just read this tonight and we go, oh, phew, I'm so glad. That's in the past, right? We don't have to deal with this anymore. Poor Daniel, he had to kind of like see that and people had to go through that. But hey, you know, it's, it's, it's in the past. It doesn't affect us anymore. Well, no, this is showing us something quite important. It's showing us that we might not understand everything happening on the world scene. And you and I might not even uh, like what we're seeing. We may feel overwhelmed by what we're seeing. But we can be confident in our God who knows the future. He knows the future. I mean, I don't know if you've ever tried to stare into the future and wonder what's going to happen. What does that do for you? If you just feel like you're peering into the abyss of your future, wondering what's going to happen, you feel quite anxious about it, don't you? Why? Because we don't know it, but God does. I mean, I've looked back on my time when we were uh, leaving Corvallis to move up here, and that was a year-long trial of agony as me and my wife would sit there and try to peer into the future and think about, man, are we supposed to do this? Are we supposed to leave Corvallis, this place we love, with this church that we've planted, all this kind of stuff? You look into the unknown, and you just have no idea. Maybe you've done that in a different way. We want to know the future because we think that will give us a greater sense of security, a greater sense of of control. But what if, like Daniel, you were actually given that glimpse? Apparently, it wouldn't give you security, would it? Whatever Daniel sees here is not giving him security. I mean, if you were hoping for an easy road of comfort and life free from trouble, you're being shown here that's not what that is supposed to be for you. But here we see that we might not know the future, but God does. I mean, again, how specific is this? This is crazy specific. And so we see here that God knows the future, and in at least knowing the future, God is never caught off guard because he knows it. He knows it. Uh, It's like this. I love love, uh, trying to scare people. Okay, I love trying to scare people. I try to scare my kids and my wife all the time. It annoys my wife. She hates it. My kids love it, okay? And so um, now they scare her. It's wonderful, okay? So we're always trying to scare each other. We're always trying to hide and and scare somebody unexpectedly. But here's the thing. There's been many times where I'm trying to scare my wife and I go and I hide, but I don't realize right before I hide she sees me hiding, right? And so when I jump out to try to scare her, it doesn't catch her off guard. It doesn't work. Why? Because she knows, right? She sees. She knows that I'm there, right? Right? We get how this works. If you're going to scare somebody, you have to catch them off guard. That's how kind of fear and the unexpectedness of it actually works. See, we don't like being caught off guard. We want to know the future, and we lack that knowing. But God doesn't. He isn't caught off guard. He knows the future. And Daniel 8 is exhibit A. It's exhibit A. So as you receive information then about your life, and the world, and all the events in it, I want to ask you, do you filter those 
through the lens that God knew this was coming? Is that how you filter your world? Is that a part of your worldview? As you think about God and humanity and all these tenets of what makes up a worldview, as you encounter these various things, as you read the news or scroll your feeds or whatever it is that you're doing, as you interact with people in this world, as you find out about things that you didn't want to see happen, are you thinking, are you filtering, saying, God knew this? God knew this. See, God knows when you'll die. God knows what will happen to your family. God knows what will happen to your hopes. God knows what will happen to our nation, your job, whether or not as a church we will get a long-term facility. He knows everything. He knows it. Is that a part of your worldview? Is your, is your heart wrapped up and comforted in this as your feet hit the ground tomorrow and you walk into your work week? Or does this mean nothing to you? See, the problem is for most of us that this isn't enough, is it? Maybe because we don't trust God, and so the fact that he just knows it's not enough for us. Or maybe because we don't think that his way is best, so knowing God knows doesn't really matter to us. Maybe because we don't think he's good after some sort of suffering that we've gone through in this world. It doesn't feel like enough. Why? Well, because we want to play God. We want to be God. It's not enough to know that God knows for many of us, and the reason is because, well, I, I want to play God. And that's a dangerous place to live. As we see next, playing God is not the salvation to your troubles. Look there in verse 19, at one of these horns that we zero in on. Out of one of them, it came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great even as great as the prince of the host and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown and a host will be given over to it uh, together with a regular burnt offering because of transgression and it will throw truth to the ground. It will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. Look over in verse 23. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. We see here in this little horn that playing God is not the solution to your troubles. Why? Because not only does God know the future, God rules the future. See, Daniel is told here in verse 17, if you look there, that the time of this is for the end. That's what it says. Now, it's important to, 
to mention this here and realize that in our modern Christian ears, we hear that phrase, time for the end. And because of the, the 1970s and the movement of Western Christianity to clarify around things around prophecy and apocalyptic literature, we read that and we mainly jump right to the end, right? The end, the end, the end of history, the end. But in the context here, that's not what it's talking about. The end is not a reference to the last days of history. That's not what this vision is about, but to the end of the horrible things that you're seeing happening in this chapter. I mean, just look at how the word is even interpreted in the passage itself. Look at verse 17. What does it say? The vision is for the time of the end. Verse 19, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end. End of what? The indignation. Verse 23, at the latter end of their kingdom, referring to this Greek kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, right? So the end is a reference to when the evil done by this fourth horn of Greece will cease and it's going to get bad, right? There's bad stuff going on here as one of these four horns from Greece rises up and does terrible things. He's a ruthless horn that is going to rise in power and he will be especially cunning. He'll be especially violent, we're told, and especially vicious towards God and his people. Sure enough, around 170 BC, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes arose from one of these four sub-kingdoms of Greece. And he set out on this violent campaign of conquest for himself. As verse 9 prophesies that this horn would aim his conquests towards the south and the east, which would have been from Greece's perspective, Egypt and Israel, that's exactly what he did. We're told he throws starry hosts to the ground uh, earlier in the passage we just read and tramples upon them. You see that in verse 10, right? This alludes to Abraham's descendants that are said to be as numerous as the stars of heaven. And he sets up against the prince of hosts, which is a reference to God himself. That's king of kings, lord of lords sort of language there. So as Daniel sees here, look in verses 11 through 12, and as it's interpreted in verse 24 and 25, this guy is ruthless. I mean, he's been referred to as like the Hitler of the Old Testament. He murdered 80,000 Jews upon entering Jerusalem. Old women, pregnant women, kids. He would kill uh, circumcised infants. He issued coins in Israel with his image that read King Antiochus, God in the flesh. And to top it off, set up Zeus's statue in the Holy of Holies, right in the middle of the temple, and had people bow down and worship it. He cut up the scrolls of the law and threw them down on the ground. God's law. It's almost impossible to describe the offensiveness of this to the Jewish people. And guys, this is nothing that you and I live with today. I mean, it's hard for us to fathom this sort of ruthlessness. I mean, this is complete and utter blasphemy against God. Scripture here calls it the abomination of desolations, right? This desecration lasted under Antiochus over six years, or to be precise, as Brian Chappell points out, 2,300 days, just as verse 14 says. It's also said that the horn would die, but not by human power. You see that in verse 25, which that happened as well. So this guy out of nowhere developed this stomach virus. He went insane and he died. Literally, uh, it says a bowel disease so odious overtook him that it drove him mad. That's really bad. That's really bad. 
Just like Daniel predicted, he died not by human hands, but by God's. So, so we have all this stuff happening here, and the worst of it is this height of sin, right? When, when the transgressors have reached their limit, right? The sin is just at its height is what it's saying. So this guy, in his own mind, thinks he's so great, is what verse 25 says. But what we don't have here, if you notice, is a question, why? No one's going, why is this happening? You don't have a why question here. You have a how question. It's the important question in the whole chapter. Verse 13, what does it say? How long? How long? How long? Well, that's the desperate cry of God's people. You read it in the Psalms. You read it in the prophets. You pray it. You say it. How long? And how amazing is this? The, the words, how long, they're not coming from a human mouth, right? They're coming from a holy one. This is, this is a reference here to angels. It's as if heaven is sympathetic to the anguish of God's people on earth. See, Israel's future did not look bright. If this vision revealed anything to Daniel, it was that God's people should expect suffering before their ultimate deliverance. And the same is true for us. Just because this is now history, as you look back, you don't go, well, ours is, ours is going to be great right? I mean, we look ahead into the unknown of the future in front of us, and we know through Christ that what's promised to us is not much different. I mean, G.K. Chesterton said, Jesus promised his disciples three things, that they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. What a life. Completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. How do you get that worldview? Right, so this is the news that we need to hear in exile, as spiritual exiles waiting to get home, right? The home that God has promised us ultimately in Christ, right? While we wait to finally get to the, the glorious land here, the true glorious land that you hear referenced in verse 9. Right? We, we should soberingly look into the unknowns of the future, knowing that God knows the future and that God rules the future. And the solution, our salvation, is not trying to play God. That's not salvation. That was actually the original sin of Adam and Eve, wanting to be like God. And that's where we have all of our problems. As Christians, we know this is a part of our worldview. All of our problems come from our sin, which is all a result of us wanting to play God. So what is salvation then? We'll look in verses 25 through 26. You have the guy trying to play God who fights the prince of princes and he shall be broken but not by a human hand. So this king boldface, right? This guy trying to play God, he is going to fight but he will not win. Why? Because he's not God. And if you're not God, you do not win trying to fight God. Well, who is this prince of princes? Who is this Man, well, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 tells you, John tells you right from go in Revelation who this man is. He says he is Jesus Christ, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. If you fast forward to the end of Revelation in chapter 19, you read about this man who's a rider on a, on a horse, and it says, on his thigh was written, king of kings and lord of lords. Who is this? Tells you in chapter 17, 
verse 14 of Revelation, that these people will rise up in power and they will try to thwart God. And it says they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords. He's prince of princes. Do you see? But do you notice who are they making war with? This king of kings, this lord of lords, this prince of princes. Well, he's the lamb. Well, that's exactly what John the Baptist said of Jesus as he walked out to the river to identify himself with sinful humanity as he's baptized. John looks at him and he says, behold, the lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. Not to add to it, not to see it get to its height as this man here, this horn. No, he came to do away with sin. He was the one who came and didn't conquer with a sword, but he died at the hands of corrupt earthly power. And through Jesus' death, the lamb, the prince of princes, Jesus put an end to any need for morning and evening sacrifices once and for all. As do you see here this ram and this goat and this horn, these rulers trying to play God, dominating with force, with sinful oppressive acts, with the sword, yet we see another. And Daniel is catching a glimpse of who this one is, but he can't fully recognize him yet. He wasn't just great in his own mind. No, Jesus was truly great, so much so that John the Baptist said of this lamb, I am not even worthy to untie his sandal. Right, so do you see, we can be satisfied that God knows the future and that God rules the future because through the lamb, God has secured our future. So the final word on the pages of history is not had by a ram and it's not had by a goat, but it's had by a lamb. I mean, so think about how this changes your unknown future then. If your present is getting you ready, if today is getting you ready to see that spotless lamb face to face, the prince of princes, well, that changes how I think about today. That changes how I filter the present world and the circumstances I've, I face. See, what's unique about the Christian worldview is that we believe God knows and God rules the future, but through the Lamb, God is also called my Father. Uh, Samuel Ward, uh, I've been reading through some of his sermons. He's an old um, dead guy, I guess. No better way of saying it. Um, but he wrote this. Oh, that was great. He says, consider this medicine for your faith to drink in comfort. Not the slightest trouble befalls you without the overruling eye and hand of God. He's not only our wise God, but he is a tender father. He knows what you're made of and measures out exactly every cross unto us as a chemist measures grains of medicine. Right, this might be hard to see, you guys, but this world is a fathered world. This world with all your troubles, it's a fathered world. And if you see this world as a fathered world, that enables you to welcome every hardship as a sign 
of the Father's love. And that has the power to turn a bad day into a really good day. A bad day becomes a day full of God's loving discipline and instruction, which is a sign of his love. Because we all know this, if if your parent disciplines and instructs you, that's a mark of love. If your parent never does that, that is a mark of a lack of love. I mean, I can remember in fifth grade playing a small fry football. After a week, I was like, I hate this. Dad, I want to quit. And my dad said, no. You said you're going to do this. You're going to finish out the season. And that might mean nothing to you, but to me as a fifth grader, I was like, my dad is the worst. He doesn't love me. But you look back and you're like, oh, I know what my dad was doing. No, he loved me. He was trying to make me into a certain person. I mean, just just think about this. Imagine a perfect father. Maybe you had a bad father. Imagine a perfect father. A father who is not reliant on secondhand accounts from your sibling rivals. Right? A father who sees not just your actions, but your heart. A father with infinite patience who measures what he allows in our lives with perfect wisdom. What might that kind of father achieve? The answer is holiness. Hebrews 12 says, God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Do you remember God's people are in exile? Why? It wasn't because they were living holy lives. It was because of the lack of holiness in their lives. So just getting them back to the glorious land is not the goal. It's not that God God is sitting there going, how did this happen? I got to get you back to Jerusalem. No, that's not the goal. The same is true for us. We are exiles and circumstances being changed in our lives isn't the goal. The goal is us being changed. That doesn't mean that we have to pretend bad things are good things. No, not at all. Evil is evil. Bad is bad. Troubles are troubles. If you're a victim of injustice, you can say it as it is. Injustice is wrong. If you're struggling with sickness or have a loved one struggling with sickness, you don't call that good and go, this is great. No, that is a scar on the good world that God has made. We don't have to pretend bad things are good things, but in God's hands, bad things are full of purpose. We don't even have to try and interpret everything that happens in our circumstances, meaning we don't have to go, well, this is why this happened. No, we can groan. How long? How long? We can embrace hardship if we have this vital worldview that God knows the future. Playing God is not salvation for me, but knowing that he rules the future is. So if we look at the world and know what the world was created to be in its goodness and purpose, if we can look at the world and know what the problem is, it's my sin, it's the fact that I've been trying to play God my whole life. If we can look at the world and know what the solution is and what our great hope is, that will give us definition to our hardships. So as Christians, we embrace hardship. That's what Jesus taught us. Because we know that the ultimate goal of our lives and God's goal for us is to make us more like Jesus. Right? So hear me, hear me. If God's goal is to make you more like Jesus, if it's holiness, and if you embrace that as your goal, 
then we embrace hardship. We receive hardship as a gift because it makes us more like Jesus. And that's what brings me back to my my main question and, and the second point is knowing that God knows the future satisfying enough for you. Is me saying God knows the future. He's not surprised. Is that enough for you? If you would go, not at all. I appreciate your honesty. That's how I feel a lot of days. But, but it's because your goals aren't God's goals. And deep down, you know that. But if your goal is God's goal, if it's to make you more like Jesus, then we can trust that he'll see that through, through our troubles. Okay, so if my goals line up with God goals, we can say this in the midst of terror and troubles. Tim Chester writes this in one of his books, Father, thank you for this. Please use it to make me more like Jesus. Father, thank you for this trouble. Please use it to make me more like Jesus. Right, as, you, as you're bringing me in your own time away from this exile to the glorious land, use this to make me more like Jesus. As we live in a society of outrage, we live in a society of fear of the unknown future, a society that's grabbing for power, for the power of the goat and the ram and the horn. So how amazing would it be to be a place, a community, in a society like ours, that's a place of peace. That's who we want to be as a church. Not merely because that is countercultural and not merely because that sounds refreshing in our society, but because it's the promised and natural disposition of God's people. People who know that God knows the future. People who know that God rules the future. People who don't see merely getting out of exile as our goal. And so being a people who know that we live in a fathered world. Let's pray. God, we do come to you tonight and we ask for you to take a difficult text like Daniel 8 and to apply it to our lives, Lord. I cannot fathom what it would be like to see these things that Daniel saw. And it is definitely one thing to be looking on at this side of it. But Lord, help us not Help us not to ignore your truth here. Lord, I pray that we would rest in the reality that you know and you guide the future. Lord, help me to rest in that. Help us all to rest in that, to take great comfort in that. Lord, I pray that you would help us align our hearts to your goals and purposes in this world. Lord, I do pray that you would comfort those who are afflicted, comfort those tonight, Lord, who are discouraged and weary. Would you encourage them, Lord? Would you bring them to you and be their resting place? Or may we be people who know that in this world we'll have troubles, but will we take heart knowing that you've overcome the world? We pray these things in your son's name.
Amen.